to the Collective Church Podcast. Collective is a church for the rest of us, which means if you have never been to church, walked away from the church, or are struggling to find a church to connect with, you belong here. If you aren't following us on social media, make sure to head to Facebook and Instagram and search for My Collective Church to learn more about what is going on at Collective as we start this new year. Thank you again for listening. Now let's get into Sunday's message. So I love a good story, don't you? Um, On a recommendation from a friend, I'm currently reading a book called Shoe Dog, which is the biography of Phil Knight, who's the founder of Nike. Um, And this book is incredibly stressful, but I'm locked in because the story is so good. Now, maybe for you, it isn't books. Maybe you're a podcast person. It's documentaries. Maybe you love short stories. Maybe it's just sitting and listening to a family member tell stories. Whether fiction or nonfiction, if the story is good, good, we are sucked in. In the fall of 2020, I read an article called Unleashing the Brain Power of Narrative, and it shared that when we listen to a story, no matter how old we are, we're transported mentally to another time and place. The study also shared that whenever we hear a story, we actually search our brain for similar experiences, and this activates part of our brain called the insula. And the insula is this piece of our brain that controls things like compassion and empathy. It controls things like taste and self-awareness and interpersonal experiences. And so what happens when we hear a good story is our brain connects us to what we are hearing. Ultimately, it places us into the story, and we begin to feel the pain and the joy and the fear or the other emotions that the story conveys. But here's the issue with this. And maybe this is just me, but when I'm listening to a story, I only put myself in the shoes of the main character. Now, some of you are thinking, this dude's arrogant. Maybe. But don't you do the same thing, right? Don't you do that as well? When listening to a story, don't you put yourself into the place of the hero? Or or for some of you, maybe it's the villain, right? Don't you connect yourself to the survivor in the story? Don't you connect yourself to one of the most prominent people in the story that you're listening to? Did any of you hear this week uh, about the man who landed a plane even though he had zero flight experience. If you heard it, read it, this story is absolutely amazing. This dude named Darren Harrison and one other passenger were flying from the Bahamas to Florida on a small Cessna 208, which is a single engine plane that has about eight to 10-ish seats in it. And while flying, the pilot had a medical emergency. And so Darren jumped into the cockpit and he radioed the tower. On the other end of the call was air traffic controller, a guy named Robert Morgan, who was a pilot but had never actually flown a Cessna before. And so he pulled up this picture of the instrument panel, and he began guiding Darren, not a pilot, step-by-step through landing this plane. After teaching him how to level out the wings, Robert guided Darren to Palm Beach International Airport, uh, in his words, so he could have a really big target to aim for while attempting to land. That's not the right phrasing for that. But it worked. 
Uh, this crazy story. Through Robert's instruction, Darren landed the plane safely, something that takes over 20 plus hours of flight instruction. This dude did it on his first try. And after landing, Robert met Darren and they gave each other a big hug. And Robert shared that it was just such an emotional moment. And then Darren said that he was just thankful to get home to his pregnant wife, right? Like crazy story. But when hearing this story, how many of you were like, I'm just like the other passenger in the plane who did nothing, (laughs) right? Nobody does that. Even though in real life you might be that passenger, in this story you don't connect to the guy that's sitting in the back row going, well, I hope we make it, right? Your brain most likely connected you to Darren or Robert. Right, the main characters. You connected to the fear and anxiety that was felt as if you were the one flying the plane. You connected to the stress of trying to talk this stranger through landing a plane. You felt the joy they both felt when the plane landed safely. Right? And that makes sense. That's what our brain does. We connect to the most important people in this story, and we put ourselves in those shoes. Today is the last Sunday of our prodigal series. Uh, In Luke 15, Jesus tells three parables about things that are lost becoming found, including the story that we've been in, which is the prodigal son. And these stories all are lessons about how God loves lost and broken people. These stories are about grace. Grace meaning getting something better than we deserve. The way we say it here is grace is endless second chances, or or there's nothing you can do to make God love you more. There's nothing you can do to make God love you less. That's grace. And so over the past few weeks, we've been reading through the story of the prodigal son, and we've been focusing on different perspectives of the main characters. Week one, we talked about the prodigal son, the main character, and receiving grace. Week two, we talked about the father, who's kind of the hero of this story, and the idea of giving grace. Week three, we talked about the older brother who's kind of the villain and this idea of denying grace. Now, if you missed any of those, I would just encourage you to go to YouTube or podcast, search for Collective Church, look for our logo, and you'll find them because it would be really good for you to kind of check those out. But after reading through this story multiple times, I'm sure some of you have been wondering, what's the fourth perspective? Well, it's the easiest one to miss. It's not the heroes. It's not the villain. It's the crowd. It's the servants who work for the father. It's the neighbors. It's the people in that community that saw this story play out. And so here's what we're going to do. I'm going to read the beginning of the story one more time. And what I want you to do is I want you to put yourself into the shoes of the people in the community, right? Not the main characters, not the people that your brain naturally wants to connect you to, but put yourself in the shoes of the people in the community who got to witness this incredible showing of grace And I want you to think about what this was like on the outside looking in. So let's read this story one last time. It's in Luke 15, starting in verse 11. So Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. And like I've shared over the past few weeks, this was a major offense. Because he wasn't just asking for money. The prodigal son was telling his father that his life would be better if his father was dead. A few days later, this younger son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land. And there he wasted all his money in wild living. And this would have been a very public thing. His inheritance most likely wasn't a lump of cash. It would have been property. It would have been livestock. 
And so the son would have had to sell a portion of the farm in that community, pack up and leave, and everybody in town would have known. Over the past six months, uh, about six homes have sold in my neighborhood, and I and the other neighbors who are still living there know way too much about what's going on and why people are moving. Uh, we know about the family that moved because of the military. Uh, we also know about the family that moved because there was a divorce. Uh, we know about the family who sold fast and left in the middle of the night, left all their stuff in the house. Right? And we know these things not because we're close neighbors. We're not. We're just nosy people, right? We're just asking questions and trying to figure these things out. But in this context of the story, maybe there were nosy neighbors, but in this context of the story, everyone would have known what was going down because it would have been a tight-knit community. Right? They would have worked together and served together and lived together. Right? They would have known that the son wished that this father was dead. They would have known that he left to waste money on prostitutes and reckless living. They would have even known that there was an older brother who stuck around and kept working. The story continues. About the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land, and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him, and the man sent him into the fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him, but no one would give him anything. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, at home, even the hired servants have enough food to spare, and here I am, dying of hunger. Right? And so we talked about this. There's this, this moment where uh, something goes off in his head, right? where he comes to his senses, and he decides to make a change. And he is allowed to do that. Right? He's allowed to recognize that he screwed up and needs to go home. In fact, we are allowed to recognize that in our own lives as well. Right? You are allowed to have this moment where you come to your senses. You are allowed to realize that the way you are living your life is leading to pain and brokenness and destruction. And you are allowed to get out of the pit you are in and change. Right? And that's what the son does. And so he decides, I'll go home to my father and say, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you, and I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. Over the past few months, as I've been digging into the story of the prodigal son, one of the things that I've learned is that this phrase, I've sinned against heaven, I've sinned against you, aren't actually his words, or at least they aren't unique to him. In this moment, the prodigal son is actually quoting the Old Testament. He's quoting Pharaoh. You see, in the Old Testament, Moses brought on 10 plagues to punish Pharaoh for his abuse and enslavement of the Jewish people. And in Exodus 10, Pharaoh says to Moses, I've sinned against your God, and I've sinned against you. Please tell your God to take these plagues away. And what he's actually doing is he's actually trying to barter with Moses. He's saying, if I do this thing, will you do this thing? And that's what the son is doing as well. He's thinking, I want to go home. But in order to do that, I need to pay my dad back, and taking care of these pigs won't make that happen. So I need to beg my father to allow me to be one of his hired servants because he is fair and he's generous. And so he starts to run through this speech in his head in hopes of getting the opportunity to convince his father to create a way to earn his way back into good standing. And so he returned home to his father, and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Now, I don't know uh, why, but when I imagine this moment, I imagine that the dad lives at the end of this very long driveway, 
right? In my head, it's like this country house that has a big front porch, and he sits on it staring at the end of his driveway, hoping and praying that he will once again see his son. Does anybody else picture it that way? You kind of have this image in your head, right? It's this long driveway. It weaves down to the road, and when the son turns off the country road and onto the country driveway, his father sees him and starts running. Maybe I've been in Frederick for too long. I don't know. But that, that's how I imagine it in my head. And that is a very Western way to see this story. It's a very modern way to imagine this moment. In reality, though, that's not how things were set up during Jesus' day. You see, people didn't live in huge Cape Cods at the end of Brookfield Terrace. That wasn't a thing. They lived in communities. Actually, a better way to describe it would be that they lived in compounds. And the way that these communities or compounds were set up was that there would be a gated entrance because typically the community that they lived in would be walled in. And so this story isn't about walking up to a father's house. It's about walking through a community gate. And because of that, it was a community matter. Right? Everyone would have known that he was returning home. And as I learned more about this story, I learned that there is something in play here called Keza. Now, Jesus doesn't explicitly mention this while he's telling this story, but it would have been in the back of the minds of the people that were listening. Dr. Kenneth Bailey is a New Testament scholar and author who's written multiple books on the Bible and, and kind of reading the Bible through the cultural lens in which it was written. And he writes about how in the Talmud, the Jewish law dating back to the days of Moses, there was this ceremony called Keza. And that ceremony would happen if a Jewish boy married someone that the family didn't approve of or if a Jewish boy lost their inheritance, specifically to a Gentile or a non-Jewish person. And if either of those scenarios happened to play out and the boy decided at any point that he wanted to come back home, he would have to come to the village and face the Keza ceremony at the gates of the village. And this ceremony would be led by the elders of that village and the father of the boy wouldn't be able to attend. The mother could go and she could plead for mercy but not the dad. And the reason the father wouldn't be able to attend was because in this culture, a father's blessing superseded community decisions. And so the father was actually required to remain in the house to ensure a fair trial for the prodigal sons who returned home. And so the moment he walked through the gate, this son was welcoming Keza. He was welcoming this trial with the elders of a community where he would present his case and they would decide his fate. Right? They would decide if Keza was coming, which is a word that means cut off. And if he got Keza, what they would do is they would throw a clay pot at his feet and smash it on the ground. They'd say, you are now Keza. You are now cut off from your community and your family forever. And this son knew that not only did he have to face his father, but he had to get through Keza first. And so his plan and his only shot at being allowed back was to tell the elders that he came back so that he could work for his father in order to pay off this inheritance. Right? And knowing all of this, the father was watching the road just in case his son came home. He was waiting day and night. Why? Because the father knew that he had to get to his boy before he got to Keza. And the only chance that the dad had to put his arms around his son was to get to him before he got through the gates of the village. And so when he saw him far off, he began to run to him. 
And filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you, and I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. And again, this wasn't just a moment between a father and son. People were watching. Right? They're waiting to see how this story was going to play out. And so the son begins to plead his case. Dad, here's my plan, but his father doesn't even let him finish. His father said to the servants, quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet and kill the calf we've been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast. For the son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found. So the party began. And on the road in that moment reconciliation happened between a father and a son, and it trumped Keza. There was no trial. Instead, they walked right through the city gates and right into the house, and they had a party. The neighbors, the servants, the other family members who would have lived in that community were with them. And they were celebrating because the son didn't get cut off. He got grace. And let me just say this before we dig into the main takeaways for today. Not long after Jesus shared this story, he was arrested and put on trial for claiming to be the son of God. And one of the reasons that religious leaders in that day hated him was because of stories like this. Jesus told this story to let everyone know that he came for lost people, that he came to bring grace and forgiveness of sins, and that he actually had the power to do that. And people didn't like it, so they put him to death. And when Jesus went up on the cross, he took on the sins of the world, the sins of the past, the sins of the present, the sins of the future, your sins and my sins. And when he did that, he became separated from God. He got cut off. He got Keza. And Jesus did that so we could experience grace. Right? He knew we couldn't pay off the debt that our sin creates, and we would be cut off from God forever. So he took on those sins so that we could have eternal life with God. And then three days later, he conquered death and rose from the grave, proving that he truly was the Messiah, the one that was sent to rescue us. And this is who Jesus is. And if you are not a follower of Jesus, please know that he came to earth to give himself up as a sacrifice for our sin, for your sin, so you could get grace. And this story reminds us that when God sees us, wherever we are in our state of life, he doesn't cut us off. He has compassion for us. It doesn't mean that consequences aren't real. It doesn't mean God's happy about the choices we make. It just means he sees how much we hurt. He knows how lost we feel. And he's looking at us, and his heart breaks for us. He's filled with love and compassion. He is a father, and he's running toward you. And so of everything that we're going to talk about today, if you are not a follower of Jesus, this is what we want you to know. It's not too late to come back home. It's not too late to experience grace. You don't have to barter for it. You don't have to jump through a bunch of hoops. It's just there for the taking if you actually want it. And so if you're hearing this story, no matter how hard you're trying to think about the crowd and what they saw, you're still thinking about what it would be like for you to come home because that's what you want, then your next step is to come home. It's to come to your senses and turn toward God. Ultimately, it's to put your faith in Jesus and get baptized. And if that is something you are ready to do or want to talk to someone about it, 
We encourage people every single week to check the baptism box on their digital connection card or head to Next Steps after service so that we can talk this week. For the second week in a row, we get to celebrate a baptism. We're going to celebrate Deanna as she's baptized today. At the beginning of the year, Deanna was invited by some friends, uh, and she shared with us a little bit of her story, and she shared with us that she struggled with anxiety for a really long time. But since coming to Collective, she's been spending more time reading her Bible, and this has led her to a more peaceful place. And after wrestling with baptism for a while, she checked the box because she was ready to accept God's forgiveness and God's grace. And she's ready for that new life that Jesus has for her. So after first service today, we're going to celebrate really hard with Deanna today. Let's get back to the story, though. So the prodigal son returns home. The father runs to him, embraces him, eliminating the possibility of him getting cut off. And then what the father does is he invites everyone in the community to celebrate his lost son who is found. Now, imagine what that would have looked like for the community that was watching this to get a front row seat to seeing grace given and grace received. Right? This would be a life-changing moment for them. I mean, how do you think it would have made them feel to see the father give his son forgiveness and a second chance after he wished he was dead? Right? And I don't know about you, but if I was in that place, like I would want this dude to be my dad. Right? Or, or at least I would want this to be the type of person that I worked for. I would want this type of person to be a leader and an elder in my community. I, want, I would want to be like him and give grace, and I'd want to be near him and experience grace. Right? And I think you would feel the same way. So here's how I want to wrap up this series today. I have two questions, and really there are two challenges. And I think these fit really well, considering everything we've learned over the past few weeks about grace and what it means for us and what it means for other people. And so here's the first question I want you to wrestle with. And again, if you're taking notes, I really encourage you to write this down, take out your phones, take a picture of it. Um, But this is what you need to wrestle with this week. Uh, The question is this, am I living in a way that the people in my life can witness grace? Am I living in a way that the people in my life can witness grace? Can they see the grace that I have received in my own life? Right, the grace I've received from God, the grace I've received from others. Can they see the grace that I give to others? Am I living in a way that the people in my life can witness grace? Think about your social media presence. I know you don't want me to go there, but I have to. Right, when people look at what you post online, what do they see? Right, do they see grace? Do they see love and compassion? Do they see empathy? Right, from the outside looking in, when people even know that you follow Jesus based on what you post and comment and say online. What about your marriage? Right? Specifically, if you have kids, do your kids see grace playing out in your marriage? Right? And this doesn't mean everything has to be perfect. It won't be. Right? And this also doesn't mean that you fake it. You really shouldn't do that. You should be real about your brokenness. But what I'm saying is when mistakes are made, when misunderstandings happen, when life is stressful, is there still grace in your marriage? And ultimately, is it so obvious that it'll actually lead to your kids having healthy marriages because they're witnessing it? Right? What about with your neighbors? Do you actually know them or are you just nosy? What about your coworkers? What about your friends? Right? When people look at your life, what do they see? In the Sermon on the Mount, um, Jesus' most famous teaching, Jesus says it like this. 
He says, you are the salt of the earth, but what good is salt if it has lost its flavor? Can you make it salty again? It'll be thrown out and trampled underfoot as worthless. You're the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. Right? And so Jesus is talking to Christians, essentially, and he's saying, we are salt of the earth. Right? We're to be seasoned with grace. We're to bring flavor to this world. We're to bring light into the dark places. Right? We are called to let grace permeate the pain and brokenness and dysfunction of the world. So am I living in a way that people in my life can witness grace? But taking this a step further, now, here's the second question that we need to wrestle with. When people outside of this church look in, what do they see? Do they see people who are being real about their brokenness and how God is working in their lives? Do they see people whose lives are being and have been changed? Do they see parents who are fighting for generational healing, whether that's relational healing or emotional healing or spiritual healing? Do they see marriages that were once rock bottom being restored in ways that won't make sense in the real world? When people on the outside look into this church, do they see grace? Right? Do they hear grace in our words? Are we seasoned with salt? Are we a light on a hill in Frederick? Is collective a place where people can truly belong, even with their doubts, even with their addictions, even with their brokenness? Right? And this doesn't mean, and we've talked about this, this doesn't mean we ignore sin. This doesn't mean there's no accountability. This doesn't mean that we neglect truth. It just means that this needs to be a safe place for people to wrestle with those things and fail, and fail again, and fail again as they work to be more like Christ. Or how about this? Do we love cancel culture more than we love endless second chances? I've quoted this book a ton in this series uh, because it's just that good. Um, so if you're looking for something to read, I would encourage you to read it. It's the book called What's So Amazing About Grace by Philip Yancey. And in this book, he writes, grace is Christianity's best gift to the world, a spiritual nova in the midst exerting a force stronger than vengeance, stronger than racism, stronger than hate. But then he writes this. Sadly, to a world desperate for this grace, the church sometimes presents one more form of ungrace. So when people outside of this church look in, what do they see? Right? Do they see real people with real struggles, being real about those things, who are giving real grace, or putting this as bluntly as I can, are we just another church that gets a group of people together on Sunday to sing songs, listen to some dude preach, and leave everything we learned at the door on the way out? And I don't know about you, but when people hear about Collective, I want them to think that this is a church that doesn't just talk about grace, but is swimming in it. Honestly, that's what I want for people to think about the church and Jesus as a whole, but I don't think that's ever going to be a reality anymore, and I'm just being honest. But when it comes to Collective, the thing that we actually get to control I want our community to look at this place and know that Collective is a place where lost and broken people can come home and be made new. And I want them to think, I want that. I need that. How do I get that? 
Right? This is one of the reasons we do things like the mission restock. Right? It's the fight food insecurity, but the real reason is because we want people to know that God loves them. We want people to know that Jesus is for them. We want people to experience grace. And so we spend our time and we spend our money and we pray and we connect, not just because people are physically hungry, but because they are spiritually hungry as well. And so we feel like it's our responsibility to step up and create space for people to experience Jesus through being engaged in this community in a way that shows grace. The first sermon I ever preached at Collective was on this parable. And I went back and forth for a really long time trying to figure out what I would say. And I realized that if there was one story in the Bible that I wanted to set the culture in tone for our new church, it was this one. Uh, and I want to share with you part of what I shared that day almost five years ago. Uh, on page one of Philip Yancey's book, What's So Amazing About Grace, he tells a story about a woman who is a prostitute who realized that she could make more money in an hour than she could in a whole day if she sold off her two-year-old daughter. And in the story, she comes to Yancey's friend seeking help. And, and the friend asks, have you ever thought about going to church for help? But she rolled her eyes and responded, why would I go to church? I already feel bad enough. And we know that feeling. We've been in that place uh, before where we didn't need someone else to tell us we'd screwed up because it was obvious, right? We were in a pig pen looking at the pigs thinking their life was better than ours. And what we needed in that moment was for someone to help us up. We needed someone to tell us that we could have a fresh start. What we needed was grace. And this is why we started Collective. And almost five years later, one thing that I know that our church gets right is grace. And so no matter who you are, no matter what religious baggage you have, however many people you've slept with, whatever number of divorce you are on, whatever your secret or your addiction or your facade or your sin, and no matter how many times you know the right thing to do and you've still chosen the opposite, our hope and our goal is that collective is a place, in the words of Philip Yancey, where grace is kept on tap and the bar is always open. That's what we want people to see when they look at collective from the outside. Let's pray. God, as we wrap up this story today, um, and God, it seems like we've tried to look at it from, from every angle possible. God, I just pray that, that this story that your son told resonates with us. And God, really, it resonates with us in different stages of our life, as, as oftentimes we're the prodigal. God, we're the one that screwed everything up. And God, we're the one that needs to come to our senses and come home. But God, there are times in our life where we're the father, and it's not us who's messed up, but it's people we love, and they're asking us, will you forgive me? Will you give me grace? And God, we have to wrestle with that. God, sometimes we're the older brother. God, sometimes we, we don't like it when other people receive grace. The truth is, we want it for our own life, but we're not ready for other people to receive it. But God, no matter which person that we connect to, the thing that we have to remember is that there's always a group of people looking at our life. God, there's always a group of people looking at our church. And so God, we really have to wonder and wrestle with what do people see? And so God, this week, as we, we think about these questions, um, 
God, as we put them into play in our marriage and our relationships and at work, God, I, I pray that the way we are living our lives just, just breathes grace into this world. God, just shows grace um, unconditionally. And God, I pray that ultimately that leads people not to us, but to you. And God, I, I pray that for this church, God, as we think about who we are and what impact we make on this community, God, I pray that uh, Frederick knows that Collective is a place where prodigals get to come home. God, it's a, it's a place where they know there's a father sprinting toward them. And God, we as a church and we as individuals don't get in the way of that. God, thank you for the grace that you offer us. Um, God, thank you for the grace that many of us have experienced in our own life. Um, God, help us live in a way that actually shows up. It's actually seen. It's actually part of who we are. It's a culture of who we are. And it permeates uh, the darkness of this world. God, we thank you and love you and pray these things in your name. Amen.